Hello, 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 my lovely parent friends. Apparently we are friends. I say that every time and I believe it. And the reason why I believe it is because I get to decide that. First of all, you're all still here, which is pretty great. Episode number five of the Shut Up and Act Dumb podcast, going from contention to connection with your teens and tweens. And I also decided that you are my friends and I get to decide these things no matter what you think, no matter what you believe, no matter what's going on in your mind, no matter what story you tell in your head, I get to make a choice as to who I like or don't like, whether they like me or not, that's their business, about who I decide are my friends or not my friends. I don't expect anything from you. I just believe you're my friends and I love you. And that's just it. And some people think I might be delusional. Like, how could you believe that? But the truth is, is that we are all somewhat delusional. And the reason why we're somewhat delusional is that we believe things all the time that we don't necessarily know for sure. Like there are some times where our teens or tweens will come home and they'll say, this person doesn't like me. And they'll have no evidence necessarily, except maybe a side glance, or somebody didn't say hello, or somebody acted a little bit different. We have no idea what's going on in the minds of that other person, but somehow it's being perceived as not being liked. That's delusional too. So if you're going to be delusional, you might as well be delusional with the thought that actually gets you to the place where you want to go ones that serve you, ones that make your life go better. My life feels infinitely better believing that you guys are my friends. And I have nothing to refute that. And even if you wrote to me and said you're not my friend or that you don't like me, I still get to decide what I make that mean. Maybe I haven't spoken to you in a certain way. Maybe I'm bringing up feelings in you that you just can't explain or don't want to deal with in the moment. There are so many things that could be causing these feelings, but they don't necessarily have to do with me. And I think that's the part of managing our mind and making decisions about what we want to think intentionally. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about my life because I don't think I've spoken to you guys much about me and who I am. My name is Nikki Naradin and I am a medical doctor. Sometimes I say I'm a mud because I'm not sure whether people like me or don't like me. Not that I really care, but I'm not that impressed with my MD after my name. Although it has helped me get to certain places that I might not have gotten to before. But the thing that it has helped me with is it's given me the opportunity to know people, to talk to people, to get to know people that I would never, ever have the chance to speak to otherwise. So for 27 years, I worked as the medical director for a homeless project at a large FQHC, which is a federally qualified health center in New York City. There I was seeing patients at shelters, soup kitchens, on the street, and my favorite and most beloved place, an LGBTQ teen shelter, where I got to spend time with my wonderful, lovable, annoying, delicious teenagers. 
And that's kind of where I got to know teenagers really well. But it wasn't because I got to know them well. It, it turns out that I'm just silly and I'm cute and I'm not that judgmental and I kind of enjoy silliness and I don't expect anybody to act a certain way. So they liked me and they opened up to me and they told me lots of things. The other thing is that I have two kids. I'm married, have been married for 23, almost 24 years to the same person. We almost weren't married this past summer while I was trying to figure out what to do with my life now that my teenagers are both going to be in college. So that's going to be an interesting thing to think about too, and we'll probably get there at some point. So I have two older teens, ages 19 and 21, and I did a lot of experimenting with them. I did a lot of attachment style parenting where they stayed very close to me. I did a lot of listening and not speaking and worked on that as much as possible. I did a lot of hanging out when they didn't look like they wanted me or when they told me that they didn't want me and really cultivating the belief that they always want me. Why wouldn't they want me? Who else better but me? It has nothing to do with me. And once I could actually believe that, I could stay in there. And I remember there were times where my daughter, who did some self-harming behaviors, she was a cutter, and she would be in the bathroom. And I would know she's in there, and I wouldn't know what she was doing, and I wouldn't assume to know what she was doing, but I would sit outside that bathroom door, and every couple of minutes I would knock and say, hi, honey, I'm still here. And she'd be like, oh, God, can I get a little privacy or something? And I'd be like, no, no, I'm just hanging out here. And, you know, every once in a while, I'd slip a note under the door, like, I'm thinking about you. I love you. What's going on? Do you want some dinner? But I tried to stay as casual as I possibly could. I also tried to stay as humorous as I possibly could. So if you could stay with a little bit of humor every once in a while and not take things so seriously, it definitely goes a long way. And then eventually she'd say, get out of here. Can't, can't I be alone for like one minute? And usually my response, which was a pretty pat response, was if you somehow felt like I left you alone when you were feeling bad or things were hard, even for a second, it wouldn't be worth it. And then I just kept saying that. And I kept believing that. And the reason why I believed it was because I knew when my kids were young, they didn't want to be alone when they felt bad. They wanted to be with people. And that they learned very quickly that when they weren't happy, when their face didn't look good, when they weren't showing the pleasant, joyful, connected, cooperative feelings, that nobody wanted to be around them. And we show them that in many, many ways. We do a lot of jiggling for our babies. We put things in their mouths so that they don't cry anymore. We give them lots of food. We put them in front of a computer or Netflix or some kind of show. Or sometimes, and I know this happened for me, and I'm sure it happened for some of you, they said, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Or go upstairs and come down when you look good or you're happy again. Kind of not realizing that the hurt was already there and that the crying was helpful to actually let out the hurt and that we didn't actually have to do or they didn't have to do anything in relation to making it better. 
So that is our goal. Our goal is to figure out how to be present for somebody else's experience, not make them our own, not be triggered by whatever seems very familiar to us, and then give them an ear to listen to whatever's going on with them. And at some point, you might figure out that something needs to be done, but most often, nothing needs to be done. Just listening, being present, and then knowing that somehow you're not anxious or worried or they have to take care of your emotions would be enough. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the 50-50. And the 50-50 means that there's 50% good things that happen, joyous things, happiness, and 50% of life is not like that. And people are generally begging me to not give it 50-50. Is there any way that it could be like 20-80, First of all, there is no understanding sadness or unhappiness without knowing joy and happiness. There'd be nothing to compare it to. You wouldn't know whether you were joyous or not. The other thing is that you don't necessarily want to be happy all the time. You don't want to be happy if somebody dies necessarily. You don't want to be happy if something hard happens. But the truth is, is that hard things have happened throughout history. And if you look back, you'll see that. And to deny that that happens is part of our delusional thinking. To think that somehow it won't happen is part of our delusional thinking. The idea is that it will happen and that we don't actually have to be happy all the time to know that things are okay. We don't have to be happy all the time. But the other part about it is that when we're trying to be happy all the time, we're doing all of the false pleasures that we do in order to be happy. We're distracting ourselves. We're working on the joy. We're fighting against it at every moment. That actually makes the unhappy times much more unbearable. It kind of turns our 50% into 70%. So the thought is, is that if you know that life is 50-50 and that your true goal is to have a full human experience with all of the good, the bad, the up, the down, the comfort, the discomfort, if our goal is to have that human experience and allow for those difficult emotions, then those difficult times actually don't feel quite so bad. You might even find yourself enjoying those times. But if we try desperately to stop them as quickly as possible, generally with some kind of external substance or external distraction, what ends up happening is that 50% gets larger and then whatever we're buffering with makes our lives go worse. So if I'm buffering with food, which is my buffer of choice, then I'll gain a lot of weight. Now, I'm not worried about gaining weight necessarily. I don't think that that is the badge of whether you don't have an eating problem, you do have an eating problem. It's just that I don't feel quite as good. My clothes don't fit as well. I might be somehow a little bit more prone to heart disease, to high blood pressure, and other things going on with me. So all of a sudden, my 50% becomes higher. If I'm drinking then I have to worry about whatever the repercussions are of alcohol 
and then my 50% gets higher. So just buffering and resisting will actually create much more than 50%. And then you're wondering why you feel bad all the time. So your 50% actually becomes 80% or 90%. So the idea is that when you feel bad, acknowledge that that's part of the human experience, that nothing has gone wrong, and then allow for those feelings. Allow for them. Feel them fully. Know that they're there. Know that a feeling is just a sensation in your body and you can handle any feeling. And then once you get through all of those feelings for that one particular instance, when you feel bad, then I want you to put a beautiful little marble, a stone, a penny, whatever you want in a jar. And each time you do that, you watch whatever is in that jar rise up. And once you see that jar filling, you know that you can handle any emotion you want and that you can handle the 50-50 of whatever's going on. And the reason why I'm telling you about that is that if you can handle that in your mind and not confuse the negativity with whatever negativity your kids bring you, then you'll be able to listen without getting completely confused that something is really wrong. You want to be able to listen and know that everything is actually okay. There is very little that's going on right now that's going to kill us. So when we're upset that our children don't have enough friends, and I've seen posts like that, I've had people talk to me about that, what they've said is that their daughter only had one friend and one friend isn't enough. And that friend isn't around very much because of COVID. There were always reasons. But then I found out a little bit later that this person struggled with friends themselves. So they were jumping in the pool with the problem that their child is having and creating a bigger problem. So the idea is your child is presenting something to you. They're working on it for some reason. You don't have to fix it and you don't have to believe that there's necessarily something wrong. So if you stay there and remember that your child does have one friend for this particular instance, or that you're there with them listening, and that might be enough. If anything, that is enough. Your wonderful, present attention is gonna be enough for them. Then they'll have the courage to go out and possibly look for more friends, or possibly get involved in an activity. But once we jump in the pool with them, and say, oh my God, she has no friends. She's gonna be alone forever. Go down the rabbit hole of worst case scenarios. I call it pre-traumatic stress disorder. Then they'll somehow believe that identity, that somehow they're a person that doesn't have enough friends or somehow they're a person who will not be able to make friends in the future. There's no reason to go there because there's nothing really wrong. Nothing really happened. There is some sadness, but you get to stay present and there for the sadness and know that that's part of the 50-50 of the joy and unhappiness. That is what I have for you, my friends. I am keeping them bite-sized because I know that we parents are busy and we have a lot to do. So if you're interested in knowing more about the Shut Up and Act Dumb program, I can put you on the wait list for the next workshop that we're going to be doing, but also come join the Shut Up and Act Dumb Facebook group. 
It's a great place for parents to be. Whatever questions you have, I'll answer them. Or one of my lovely parents who have actually been through the program, who understand the philosophy, will answer them with you. And then you too can be on that road to something more peaceful in your mind. A home that could be more joyous, more peaceful. Okay, I love you all. Remember, come to drnikkineritin.com and that's D-R-N-I-K-K-I-N-E-R-E-T-I-N.com for your free ebook. All right, I love you all. Please share this, like, rate, review with everybody, anybody who you believe will somehow benefit from this. I feel like if there's any one parent who doesn't have this information and needs it, that I have to keep going. All right. Love you all.